it's good to be back here on, on, on Palm Sunday with you all and, and to know that this is a very uh, special week for all of us. And yet, I want to say that uh, in one sense, uh, this, these two weeks set Christianity apart among all the other religions of the world. And in one sense, there's so much that needs to be said and, and reflected on, and yet we just quickly pass over it. I don't want to do that, but I'm going to take a, a special approach this time to do a couple of things. One, in the West, we tend to personalize the cross and the message in a particular way that we privatize our faith in God. And I want to lift us up out of that realm of thinking, to think that there's something much more going on here than your personal salvation, than your personal needs. And you will miss that if you just think it on a very low level. And so I want to have you think and pray with me that uh, what's going on here is a cosmological change in the universe throughout all time. And, and even as I'm thinking about these so majestic themes, I'm thinking, who's, who's adequate to talk about these things? So let me pray again just before I start. Father, I, I don't have that ability to give that insight that you have and you want to have us understand. So I would pray that your spirit would open our eyes, that you would do the work, and that you, your resurrection and the, this crucifixion would all come into focus for each and every one of us here. So Father, I just turn to you and say, that which is of you, uh, may that take root and go deep, but that which is of me, just burn off, and may you get the glory for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to get your head around all that God has done on earth. But I'm calling this uh, a particular uh, battle, a, uh, a theological checkmate. And you think about what's going on in terms of the battle for human souls. This particular week has to do with the fact that Jesus died. This death of our King is not something that we understand or even want to talk about because in the West we want to be more positive and uplifting and, and God wants to bless and we don't want to hear the negative. And so, but this is the very mark for the Christian that sets us apart. For there is no other God in the universe that would claim, would declare what God would even attempt to do and did and then that would call into existence a group of people who would wear a torture symbol as a mark of worship. We worship in a very strange way because we have a marvelous God who's done wonderful things for us. And so as I talk about this, I want to talk about three things as I get into it, and, and we'll see how far we get into it. We want to talk about this as a biblical narrative. It's a revelation story that talks about history of God's people and how God called and redeemed his people. So we're going to look at the biblical narrative a little bit. And then we're going to look at this, this idea that there's a war going on. And the strategy that Satan has and the strategy that Jesus has is really a, a cosmic battle. And so as it says in Ephesians 1, 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us, and in all wisdom and insight. That phrase that this week is one that was thought through with foresight, with wisdom, with wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention of which he purposed in Christ with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of all the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ in heaven and on earth. Also we have obtained this inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things out after the counsel of his will. And as you get into this week, you have to think that God is working out his strategy to defeat uh, Satan and bring about salvation. But we're going to look briefly and understand where this is pointing to is that there's a baptism that's taking place on the cross at the grave that invites you and I into the same existence that Jesus Christ had. So as we get into it, we have these four grand themes of Scripture. The, the theme of creation, the theme of fall, the theme of, of redemption, and the theme of restoration. And this week we're going to narrow our focus only on that theme of redemption. And it's a great theme. And as we, we begin this week... As they began that week in, in the Semana Santa, they had a king coming in glory, but it was a humble king riding on a foal of a donkey. This king, this Messiah, uh, was prophesied back in Isaiah, and J. Alec Motier, who wrote this book uh, on the prophecy of Isaiah, would say that the whole gospel of Isaiah is presented in these themes that there is a, a messianic king. And this king is going to come and he's going to become a suffering servant. And this king who suffers as a servant is going to be the anointed conqueror. And so you go back in the prophecies of old, that wisdom and the insight that God says, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it in a particular person called my son Jesus, the Messiah. Each role that king, that servant, that anointed conqueror would come with the word of revelation from above, would come in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, that it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that's working out this salvation throughout all eternity. But each role that as Isaiah would anchor this in Scripture, this is not just history, it's biblical history. And that biblical history ends up in a promise to you and to me, not just personally, but to everyone who calls upon the name of Christ in this universe. And therefore, it's a testimony to the things in heaven that the angels long to look at, things on earth that people resist looking at. And so this righteous character of the king, Isaiah would say this messianic king would be about a, a, a king who would rule in righteousness. His character was righteous. His rule would be righteous. And those underneath him would become righteous. The focus was on rightness. And this king wanted to right that which was wrong. 
then the suffering servant likewise would also be a man that would be right. And he would address that which is wrong. This one who is a donkey riding into the very uh, injustice of, of the cross that's coming up. He knew what he was getting into in order to undo the unrighteousness of the world. And therefore the Holy Spirit would also lead him through the story to become the anointed conqueror. Similarly, he too would be righteous. Listen, as Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah would talk about this righteous conqueror. And he said with this, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the the Lord and the day of vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion and granting them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of the spirit of fainting. And they will be called the oaks of righteousness. As you get into this, you have to understand that there's a way of seeing this mind of Christ, but have a vision for the world. And as Jonathan Swift would say, vision is the art of seeing what is invisible to others. And certainly Jesus would see far beyond you and I. This one, this Messiah, this Messianic King, this suffering servant would come into our world and we would know him for a lot of the teachings. We would say he's a master teacher, the Sermon on the Mount. People would follow him because he would have great insight into humanity. But it wasn't just the parables and it wasn't just the teachings. It was also the power to heal. Not just to heal physically, but no one had ever spoken with authority to say, your sins are forgiven. No one would ever say that. Who are you? Who are you to declare, to to assume you have the right? And this one we call Christ, the Messiah, moves in this week with Hosannas because they knew the Messianic king had arrived. And yet, the thing would fall apart. It would fall apart. And as Paul would write to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. But let me tell you, he had reason to be ashamed. And he had reason to write these words, because this Messiah would die as a criminal. This one would create a havoc as a rebellious, as a cult leader. Not going through the system, but taking a a, a band of ragtag men unknowns and and creating a movement that would challenge the very system itself overthrowing overthrowing the temple and saying tear it down these matter nothing and therefore there was a shame the shame that you would worship one who is so beaten and bloodied on the cross you'd turn your eyes away from him this messianic king became the suffering servant. 
And we say in the Nicene Creed, if you hear that little creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and born of the Virgin Mary from the beginning of his life, he had the spirit of God. We know that story, but look at that creed. Born, and then he suffered under Pontius Pilate. The whole life of Jesus is wrapped up in that one word, he suffered. The whole of Jesus' life was about suffering. And then, and then he was crucified. And then he died. And then he was buried. And it goes on. We know the resurrection's coming. But this idea that God would somehow work, work to have his son crucified, a mystery of mysteries, not to be taken lightly, not to be thrown off. But if you go into the scriptures, as you read the four gospel accounts, and this is amazing to me, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four gospel writers were sharing the same story that was written from long ago with a view to an administration that this one would fulfill. And these four would tell of the story of the suffering servant. The four gospel writers would agree that this passion narrative and the goal to bring that reader. And can you remember the first time when you read the gospel story and you understood it? Weren't you aghast? Weren't you? I was caught off guard. I didn't know that Judas would betray him with a kiss. What's going on here? As I read that story, Jesus went to his own and the own, his own rejected him. I thought, I don't understand this story. Even as a non-believer, I thought, what is going on here? But I kept reading and I kept reading. The idea that there was an awful ending to the life of Christ of 33 years as he was culminating this ministry and then it all fell apart and at that week the men were in post-traumatic stress thomas had a psychological breakdown the men were running everywhere the, the movement that was going to really bring in the kingdom all all of a sudden became a terrorist attack that they're going to now come after me and they all scattered this wasn't the way the men thought it was to be they were going to be a conquering king they didn't get one. Something else was going on. All the parables and all the teachings, everything that was up to this point was a prologue. Because as you get into these four Gospels, you, get, you understand that there's something about vindication. God had to do something before he got the victory. The vindication and then the victory. But all three of the, all four of these Gospels, interestingly, contained the revelation by Jesus Christ himself, trying to train his men, not just to go out and do ministry and help people, but to train his men that he was there not to get them to do things for him, but to understand that which he was going to do for them. But they didn't understand it. The revelation of a loving redemption of the Son of God, portraying compassion and forgiveness and healing, would come to that climax of agony in order to achieve salvation. 
Jesus said this way in Mark. Mark has these three passages. He said to his men, Jesus will suffer, be rejected, killed, and will rise after three days. This is the first time in Mark. The second time in Mark, he said the same thing. Mark 9, Jesus will suffer, be rejected, killed, and will rise again in three days. But as he gets into this holy week, Jesus becomes very specific. He will, I will be delivered, condemned, mocked, flogged, killed. And the closer you get to Gethsemane, and the closer you get to Golgotha, you hear the heartbeat of Jesus being so, so caught up in this passion because he knows what's coming up. Three times in Mark. Three times in Matthew. The same story. You know the story that, 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 that Peter, James, and John go to the Mount of Transfiguration. And Elijah and Moses come. And it's, it's a grand, grand experience because the Lord of glory is transformed. And they hear God say, this is my beloved son. Hear ye him. What a great story. That was in 17. In 16, Peter would say the same thing that... Jesus would say, who do you say that I am? And Jesus would say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What he had heard on the mountain, this is my son. And as soon as that was recognized, Satan came in. And Satan said to, to Peter, uh, I'm going to use your next words. After recognizing that he is God's Messiah, Jesus then announces for the first time in Matthew that the Son of Man, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. This is the Messiah anointed, God-given, revealed to Peter. I'm going to build my church on this one. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes, and be killed. And Peter says, no way. No way. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You see, there's something about this cross and this, this suffering Messiah that we don't want to deal with. But Jesus at that point would set his face like flint, steadfast. And the Messiah knew there's no other way to go. It's kind of like a pink, uh, one of those pinball machines. You know, you're bouncing around, you're doing this thing, but you get to that point where that ball goes right down the middle and nothing you can do is going to stop that gravity. Jesus was on his way to the cross and the men did not know it. In Luke... The Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and he must be killed and on the third day be risen up. And in this glory, they were astonished at all the things that he was doing and expected this greatness of God. But that's in the middle of this greatness, Jesus hits that middle road and they did not understand. They did not comprehend nor could they. 
until it was all finished. And he said, you would hear these words. You will remember these words after I have been risen from the dead. And they were afraid, it says, to ask him about it. Luke talks about it three times. And Jesus said to Luke, let these words sink into your ears. How difficult it must have been for the Messiah to know that these men had a hard time knowing what's coming up. Of course he understood. He knew, but he kept repeating, he kept repeating. And it came to pass when the time was come to be, that he should be received up, he set his face, he was steadfast. John likewise said three times, each of these gospel writers three times, this is going to happen to the Messiah. Just as Moses be lifted up, lifted the snake up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life. It wasn't just a task to be done. There was a purpose for that task, and that task was eternal life. To purchase and redeem us, Jesus was lifted up. In John 8, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I can do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. And John 12, again, this is Christ. And when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death. He knew that people had to see a crucified Christ, Messiah, King, suffering. He knew that all along. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. How can you say that the Son of Man will be lifted up? They didn't understand. Neither did his mother. Doing miracles and coming off with power from heaven to change water into wine, Jesus said, my hour has not come to be revealed. And when they tried to arrest Jesus, again, he would say the same thing, my time has not come. Uh, my, uh, my hour, he was always sensitive to the timing, the timing, the timing. And it wasn't the timing until John 13. This week, the Last Supper, it says his hour had come. And when he broke that bread and had the communion at the table, he very well knew that this was time. Arrested on Thursday night, going into the garden, praying that, God, your will be done. He was arrested right in the garden by that kiss. That night, they took him away. It was the Kairos time. The Father, he prayed in the garden, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. This is the special, special event in history where eternity breaks in, heaven comes down, and justice is rolled out. This is not a transcendent, a transactional God. This is not a transformational God. This is the transcendent Lord where eternity steps into time. And we step into eternity. The next morning, Early, 6 o'clock, 
the guards probably got Jesus out, pulled him out, and began the brutal torture. As he tortured, he went down this street, the Via Dolorosa. This is the way of suffering. And this, this street, you go there today, is empty, but it would be crowded with tourists. Not then. This, this would be the one of the people who were, who were broken in heart, seeing that their Messiah was being taken away and being carried, uh, uh, carrying this cross. This is the way of the suffering servant. In Psalm 22, uh, David describes the, the prophecies of Christ carrying that cross, uh, describes a passerby who, who would ridicule him. He talked about the, the words of hurling insults. They would spit on this Christ. None of the Christ's bones would be broken. All the prophecies of, about this one who was suffering, there was a meaning behind the suffering. But Jesus would know that this, this would come to take place soon. Close your eyes as you, th- as you hear. Can you hear the streets? Can you hear people moving in and out and screaming, hurling those insults? The wood dragging? Close your eyes and hear the Roman soldiers' swords clinking. And then as Jesus, as Jesus was pulled into Golgotha, the wood was laid down. Hear that wood hit the dirt. And the cries of Jesus. And then the Romans. The clinking of nails. The moans, the screeches, the crying. At nine o'clock, Jesus was crucified. He was crucified on that cross, and if you were there and you took your finger across that beam, you would get a splinter. The blood would come out. You would see this messianic king dying at 12 o'clock for three hours in the hot morning sun Jesus' body would sweat and would bleed and at 12 o'clock it became dark darkness was on that cross from 12 to 3 o'clock and then Jesus would say those words they know not what they do Father forgive them And the way he died, the way he died, the Roman soldier said, I've never seen that before. The centurion, those with him, guarding him, saw the earthquake that happened. They were terrified. They had just crucified the Son of God. As he goes into this story, there's so much going on I want you to get a feel, but there's something going on behind this. It's Satan's strategy. Satan has this idea, and he knows 
that if this king gets away, he, he can't get away or it's his defeat. So Satan thinks this. I had to ask permission to torture Job. And yet, here I am, the son of God. I couldn't destroy Job. I couldn't kill Job. But I must destroy this one. I must destroy his body. In doing so, I will destroy their hope. For as long as he lives, this one will become their king. I have to destroy this king. I will wipe away their faith. I will take away their breath. I will take away his very life. And I will smash that crown and destroy his glory. They will say, well, he he came to save us and he can't save himself. (laughs) That's right. We know that Jesus was out to destroy the works of the devil. We know that the devil was out to destroy the works of Satan. And here on the cross, he thought, now I've got him. Now I've got him. Bound by those nails, the the centurions are mine, the crowd's mine, the the justice system is mine. He's mine. I will kill him. That lion, roaring lion, is now devoured. The only problem is that there's another kind of lion. And that lion had that wisdom from from beyond the beginning of time, as Aslan would, in the story, as you know, from C.S. Lewis, Aslan was killed on that stone table in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it says that the deep magic that killed the lion was was a set of laws that placed into Narnia by the emperor beyond the sea and the time of its creation. It was written on a stone tablet that the the fire stones on the secret hill and the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea. This law stated that this white witch, the one who ruled Narnia, Jadis, was entitled to kill every traitor, everyone who had sinned and broken the law. If someone denied her right, then all of Narnia would be overturned and perish in fire and water. However, Aslan, representing Christ, Unknown to Jadis, there was a deeper magic that he had. And from before the dawn of time existed, which said that if a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death would start working backwards. Aslan used this ancient law to save Edmund's life. Jesus used the ancient covenant to save ours. And therefore, as you move into this week, the one that started with Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, was a messianic king, a suffering servant who had not yet conquered, but he would come to say these words, it is finished. It is is finished. And when they took him off that cross that afternoon, can you hear his disciples? Can you hear his mother? He's gone. He's gone. Can you hear Satan say, he's gone?
is not finished totally. For that king, suffering servant, the anointed one, to conquer was laid behind a tomb, a stone. You see, this was theological checkmate. Ha ha! I've got you now, Jesus. I've got the king. And the king is dead. This is Palm Sunday. What happened to that Lord of glory? What happened to the one? Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory will come in. The king of glory is still to come. But for this week, be sober spirit and celebrate to know that this one would come from heaven to go to any extent to get you lifted up into glory. We call that salvation. We call it Hosanna. Shout. Because in no other name, in no other name, in no other religion, in no other space and time, we hear the story except from this book. And God wants you to know the story because God's pursuing you. Satan looks like on a Good Friday, it becomes a terrible Friday. Good for us. But the glory that the king had would go in a different direction. From Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, this time for the Messiah, he's not only dead, to us humanly, but there's something else going on in the cosmos that God is doing. As you go into the scriptures, as you do your study this week, listen and ask God to really penetrate your heart and open your eyes. Let's close. Lord, give us ears to hear and hearts to suffer with you, that we worship the one who is the Messiah, King, Servant, and Conqueror. Now draw us close to celebrate you in Jesus' name.